You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back to Ohio V the World, an Ohio history podcast. And today you're listening to episode 12, Ohio versus the Nazis. Today we're going to be looking at Ohio State and Cleveland's own Jesse Owens, the Buckeye Bullet, and how his athletic accomplishments and the political atmosphere, both here at home and in the host country of the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Germany, Nazi Germany. We'll be talking about all those implications and how Jesse Owens took it to Adolf Hitler and dispelled his myth of Aryan superiority. Jesse Owens, the grandson of a slave, the son of an Alabama sharecropper, how he rose all the way to the top and became one of the most famous people to ever come out of Ohio. And we'll be looking at, most importantly, how he got to Ohio, the great migration of African Americans from the South to the North. We'll look at Cleveland in the 1920s and 1930s. And we'll also look at the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. This is pre-war Germany we're talking about, 1936. But we'll look at how Hitler got there, how the Olympic Games almost didn't happen for the U.S. Olympic team um, due to a boycott movement, how Jesse Owens almost never even got his chance to, to become the most famous Olympian in the world. When it comes to my Mount Rushmore of Ohio athletes, um, you know, of Ohio sports, I got to put first Upper Arlington here, Upper Arlington's own Jack Nicklaus, winner of 18 major championships in golf. Jim Brown of the Cleveland Browns, the greatest football player to ever live. Um, I put LeBron James on there, the greatest athlete to ever come out of this state. Uh, Multi-time MVP winner and three-time NBA champion. And I also have to put as my fourth, not in no particular order, Jesse Owens, the Buckeye Bullet. All of those men were the absolute best at their sport. And I believe you can argue the best at their sport of anyone, the most talented, the best to ever play their games. Jesse Owens has an added element, uh, much like Jim Brown, but even more so, um, Jesse Owens had the added ability of, of defeating Hitler and defeating this Nazi idea of, of an Aryan superior race that they were trying to force down everyone's throats, not just in Europe, but across the world. The 1936 Olympics are the first modern games. We see the Olympic flame. They're filmed and televised, you know, they're filmed and, and movies are made about them. Um, and this is a guy who wins four medals in those opening days and was the hero of the games and was one of the great Olympians of all time. We'll take you to Berlin in 1936. You'll hear clips from Jesse himself. You'll hear from the announcers. You'll hear the sounds of those races. Race, Jesse's African-American heritage, fits into this larger, this larger picture of the Great Migration, the politics of race relations in the North in the 1920s and 30s. And we'll talk about you know, how Hitler came to power and what he did with those games and how he tried to use them as propaganda 
to show the Third Reich was the ultimate civilization in the modern world. We've got a couple things to plug. Uh, we are, again, the charity beneficiary of the Nightlight 614 movie series on August 24th, Thursday, in downtown Columbus, Genoa Park. Uh, all great beers. You know, we look at Mikey's Late Night, Nahi Pokey, um, some great food trucks. Land Grant Brewing will be all the booze being served. Um, we'll be there volunteering, and we will get a great check from that awesome event. They do it at almost every Thursday in the summer in Columbus. Uh, our friends Pat uh, at the Nightlight 614 crew. Check out nightlight614.com. All the season tickets are sold out for the movies, but individual tickets are still available. Uh, and we'll be showing The Sandlot, a great film from our childhood. Um, and again, that's Thursday, August 24th. Go to nightlight614.com, uh, and you'll be helping out the podcast that way. And also our guest today, David Steigerwald, a professor of history, 20th century American history, the head of the World War II study abroad program in Europe uh, for the Ohio State University. He's been there for 27 years. He's a graduate. Uh, and we spent, gosh, an hour and a half just talking. He's an incredible historian, uh, knows so much about just this time period and Jesse Owens himself. But David turned me on to a podcast you can find on SoundCloud called Origins. It's a uh, run by the Ohio History Department, Political Science Department, and they take authors, experts, historians, um, and talk about, try and put in historical perspective current political events, global events. Uh, really cool program. Check them out. Again, it's called Origins. It's an Ohio State uh, University history podcast, for lack of a better term. You can find it on SoundCloud or just look it up on Google. Really cool stuff. So I appreciate David coming in. He's an awesome guest. We're going to have to have him back. Our beer for the episode is Ohio's first award-winning craft beer. It's Dortmunder Gold, one of my favorites, one of my go-tos, a golden German lager from Great Lakes Brewing Company. Again, you can go to greatlakesbrewing.com. They've got an awesome tap room and restaurant located in Ohio City, just west of downtown Cleveland, uh, you know, the West 25th area there. Go check them out. It is their flagship beer, uh, and we chose it because it's a German lager. We're going to Berlin today, uh, and also it's got a big old fat gold medal on the front of it for Jesse Owens, so it's a pretty good fit for us. David and I had a couple here while we recorded. Uh, he's also a fan of the Dortmunder. It's the 1990 champion of the North American Brewing, uh, uh, North American Brewery Awards. So it goes back that far. It really is Ohio's first great beer, uh, and it's at every, almost every bar, restaurant, store you go to here in the Buckeye State. So go check it out. Dortmunder Gold, one of my favorites. But we got no more time to spare because we're going back to the 1930s, and we're going to talk about Jesse Owens, how he becomes one of the most famous Ohioans. I argue the most famous person to ever come out of Ohio State University. David might push back on that a little bit, but we're going to talk about how he took down the Nazi regime in their own backyard in Berlin, Germany in 1936. So take your mark, get set, we are ready to go. It's episode 12, Ohio vs. the Nazis. An amazing stat about Jesse Owens. In 1935, at the Big Ten Track and Field Championships, and we'll talk about that historic day in Ann Arbor, and probably the greatest college you know, sports achievement, maybe one of the greatest sports achievements of all time. At the Big Ten Championships in 1935, the summer before the Berlin Olympics, 
Jesse Owens set three world records. You could argue he set four. A dispute about a timing dispute said he only tied the record for the 100, uh, the 100 dash. People don't realize Jesse Owens was an outstanding long jumper. On that day, set a world record in the broad jump. He jumped 26 feet and eight and one quarter inches. That is a record that stood for 25 years. A world record. That's a lifetime in track and field. World records are set nearly every Olympics as athletes get smarter, faster, more scientifically trained. I think the craziest thing about it is his jump in 1935 on a muddy track, you know, not not even any type of the technology that we had. He would have finished in ninth place at the 2004 Summer Olympics in, in Athens. Ninth place in, would have been Jesse Owens at the Olympic Games in 2004. It's insane. Nearly 70 years later, all the technological developments, the shoes, the track isn't just, you know, a a mud pit, wind-resistant clothing, the training, the science, all that stuff that goes into it. He would have finished in the top 10 in 2004. It's remarkable. Jesse Owens wasn't born in Ohio. He was actually born in Oakville, Alabama in September 12th, 1913. Born to sharecroppers. His parents were incredibly poor. Um, He used to joke about they were so poor he didn't realize just how poor they were when he was a kid. He also wasn't born Jesse Owens. He was born James Cleveland Owens. It was later when he was eight or nine years old and moved to Cleveland. His southern accent, the teacher asked him the first day, what's your name? He went by J.C. for James Cleveland. And he said, J.C.? And (laughs) they didn't understand his accent. And everyone, including the teacher, started calling him Jesse. Jesse Owens was born. He just went with it. Um, and he, like I said, he moves to, he moves to Cleveland uh, in 1921, 1922. We're not really sure about the date. Um, but he moves as part of what's called the Great Migration. Jesse's family was indicative of the millions of African Americans who moved to the East and the Middle West basically between 1910 and 1960, 1970. But the Great Migration, really the first Great Migration, you really focus on 1910 to 1930. Jesse was right in the meaty part of that curve. His family uh, losing money, just barely making ends meet down in, in rural Alabama. They decide his, his mother talks his father, Henry Owens, after years to move up to Cleveland, one of Jesse's many siblings, had moved to Cleveland, found a job, uh, got married, and told him that it's a much better life. But they move up north, and they take the train, and Jesse Owens is now in Ohio. They move to the east side of Cleveland. But the Great Migration is on. We talked to David Steigerwald in detail about the Great Migration, how it changed not only the Middle West, how it changed Cleveland and Ohio, and all the political factors and the socioeconomic factors that go into the Great Migration. He and his family were absolutely part of the Great Migration, at least the first wave of it. So historians distinguish between two migratory waves of African-American movement from the rural South to the urban North. The first was roughly associated with World War I. Um, From 1910 to 1920, somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 400,000 or so, African-Americans made that move. Um, and then in the, the 20s, another probably 750,000 or so 
uh, did it. The depression dried up uh, migratory movement uh, within the United States, indeed internationally. And in, as a matter of fact, the 1930s saw the lowest percentage of the population move from rural to urban areas in American history, going all the way back to the original census. Wow, and that was something that was you know, going up and up every single decade. Yes, it, it was. Stops. That's right, yeah. Uh, it's really a kind of an abrupt moment. The Owenses were part, obviously, of that first wave, and their story was really very typical um, of African-American sharecropper movement. So that first wave uh, was a result of a number of causes, as human migrations usually are. The biggest numbers came during the war, and Cleveland, again, is in some ways is a real um, microcosm of this. Um, and the movement was enticed through the opportunities that war work provided. Um, you know, they moved in response to the opportunities available in industrial work uh, in, in the cities. And after all, white men were being drafted in large numbers. European immigration had been cut off because of the war. Defense contracts increased wartime production. And black men were able at least to think about filling those industrial jobs. And so it's fair to think that the war was the impetus for the, the great wave. But there were obviously other institutional uh, and, and conditional uh, reasons for, for that. The institutionalization of white supremacy and Jim Crow, which really didn't take hold until after the turn of the century, surely was an impetus for the movement out. There was the ongoing lynching wave that really didn't crest until, well, arguably until the 1930s. Um, and then there were the crop failures, the succession of crop failures in the South in 1916, 1917, courtesy of the boll weevil. And finally, the second coming of the Ku Klux Klan at the end of the war. All of those were reasons for, um, well, both polling and pushing African-Americans out. And again, migration is thought of as either a push or a pull. In their case, it was a double. Yeah. Uh, there were reasons for, for both of those. Um, in his autobiography, Owens says that after years of talking about getting out of the South, his parents finally decided to move north only after their white um, landowner tried to cheat his father out of his settle, out of his proportion of the, the crop in that particular year. And by the way, we're not exactly sure whether that was 1921 or 22 yeah, or you're right. 23, so there's some fuzziness there. Hmm. Um, it, it's possible that they went to Cleveland because of, um, of a daughter who'd already moved, but the, the, the larger reality still fits. Um, if you look at patterns of migration, it's really quite remarkable. So folks from the Carolinas tended to move up the eastern corridor. Folks from the Mississippi Delta tended to go straight up the river to St. Louis or Chicago. Folks from, well, in the case of Ohio, Georgia, and Alabama followed patterns of migration to Ohio. Oh, I didn't and, know that. That's yeah, really cool. it, you can almost set out corridors that are are rarely violated. And so the Owenses were, were really following pattern migrations, which is how people migrate. You don't go to some place just um, out, of, out of the blue. Mm -hmm. You go to where people who have already gone before you uh, have already gone. And, and so you go, you move because you've heard that's a good place. You've, you've, you move because you might know someone in a particular city who can help you get settled. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Italian migrants from from Sicily to New York City or, or to Brooklyn um, 
or, or uh, Russian Jews to New York City um, 20 years before. The same thing kind of holds, and the Owens has fit that pattern really quite well. Now, what we, what we know about them is that they didn't move because of the war, but rather because of these other issues that uh, were driving, basically pushing African Americans out of the South. In his father's case, he never got one of those industrial jobs, never got a war job, in fact, never held a regular job uh, after moving. We also talked to David about the effect of the Great Migration in Ohio on cities like Cleveland and Toledo and Cincinnati. Um, but we focus on Cleveland, that's where Owens is from, and it's you know Ohio's largest city. It had the by far the most influx of African Americans during this movement. Um, if you look at Cleveland today, the city of Cleveland, again, the city of Cleveland is probably about 35 or 40 percent of Cuyahoga County, the metro area that we know. Um, but today, the city of Cleveland has a 53 percent African American population. Um, the county is actually, I think, in the high 20s, 29, 30 percent. Um, but African Americans move to Cleveland in huge numbers. We asked David about the effect on the city how race relations uh, worked, and how the Owenses responded. There was still incredible you know, segregation and discrimination in Ohio in the 20s, 30s, and, and up through the, the civil rights movement. It got worse. Yeah. Uh, se uh, racial segregation got worse with the migration, and it continued to get worse until the open housing laws of the late 60s and the 1970s. And indeed, uh, the most segregated cities today are Detroit and Milwaukee in the United States, not Birmingham, not Mobile, not Jackson, not, uh, not Atlanta. But for Cleveland, again, it was really quite typical of the way the residential and migration patterns and the racial uh, inequalities were thereafter baked into uh, American cities. If you, um, if you look at the, the dynamics, they're really quite similar from Detroit, uh, Chicago, uh, Dayton, Pittsburgh, take your pick, and, and Cleveland. So the census of 1910 listed uh, 8,448 African Americans in, in Cleveland. By 1920, that had reached 34,000 plus. So what, what the way the numbers um, exploded waited till after 1916, and then with, a, with a, a brief downturn at the end of the war. The, the end of the war was a very sloppy moment. 1919 was a nasty year, and there was an immediate and very deep post-war recession. But good times came back pretty quickly, and so black migration to Cleveland, as well as to Chicago and Detroit, uh, didn't, wasn't put on hold very long because of the, the post-war recession. In, in Cleveland, it picked up really quite quickly, and a, a bulk of the migration in the 20s came between 1921 and 1925. In any event, the 1930 census reported 72,000 African Americans. So just between 20 and 30, you saw more than a, a double increase of the black population. It's a 900% increase it, from it's, 1910. It's, I mean. Yeah, it's, all, it's, all, it's more than an eight-fold increase over those 20 years. Um, so that by 1930, Cleveland had 20% of Ohio's African-American population as a whole. Um, as it ran its course, the migration was funneled uh, into increasingly dense and racially segregated neighborhoods. Before the migration, African-Americans were spread pretty well through the core of the city, and the 
the segregation densities that the census uh, demonstrate uh, census demonstrates um, really show that that there wasn't um, a concentration. So in the 1910 census, no census tract in the city had more than 25% blacks. Uh, as people poured in, they were funneled into the so-called Central District, Euclid Avenue to the river around 155th, uh, East 155th, and... The East Side. Yeah, well, it's what the East is, the East Side now, that's right. Um, they called it the Central District at the time. Yeah. Um, but by 1920, 10 tracks had over 25% African American, and two were over 50 but by 30, 1930, 17 tracks had more than 50% wow. African-American uh, population. So you can see a gradual but very significant concentration. Now, anybody who's familiar with an industrial city in the United States, in Cleveland in particular, will tell you that, hey, you know, that's not that big a surprise. Uh, like other industrial cities, Cleveland was a, a city made up of many different, different ethnic neighborhoods and the fact is people clustered among their own. So what's the big deal? African-Americans were just doing what the Italians did and, and the, the Czechs village, did, all yeah. of that stuff, right? And so you might be tempted to say that this was no big uh, deal. It wasn't any different from anybody else's experience, but that's just not true. And again, the census bears this out. Uh, between 1910 and 1930, just as that concentration of uh, migrants from the South was setting in, um, European immigrants, uh, Italians, Russians, uh, Slovaks, were dispersing out of the ethnic neighborhoods rather than continuing to concentrate. And the great difference between the European immigrants and the African-American migrants was exactly that. The former could, were permitted to move out of their ethnic enclaves to wherever they could afford, for the most part, where the latter were confined by practice and, if necessary, mob violence. Uh, if they dared to stray into white neighborhoods. So um, segregation was enforced through informal and, and potentially violent means. Jesse Owens was discovered by Charles Riley, his junior high track coach, um, noticed that the kid had something special. Talked about his legs and how just powerful and graceful he was as a runner, the greatest he'd ever seen. Charles would stay a, a confidant of Jesse for years. He moves on to East Tech High School on the, on the city's east side. He pumped gas at a Ohio station on Cedar Avenue. Um, he meets a girl named Ruth. Uh, and eventually, his senior year of high school, he has a baby uh, with Ruth. They were not married at this point. Um, but Jesse actually goes to the 1932 Olympic trials, to the prelims at least. Um, and he is still a huge story in Cleveland because he's breaking all kinds of high school records. Um, a meet after the Olympics, he actually beats some of the Olympians who are there on tour after the 32 games. They have a big track meet at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Track was a big deal. It was one of the biggest sports. Basketball was not really a thing. Football was very, very localized, mostly in the Midwest. And in college football, was, was also gaining some prominence. But we didn't have all the sports that we had back then. And track and field, along with horse racing, and David talks about the importance of boxing. Joe Lewis being the, the biggest star uh, with Jesse. They basically shared the spotlight as the two best athletes America had, both African-Americans. 
But track was a big deal, and Jesse has to choose a college. And he wants, he has a kid, he decides to stay nearby in Ohio State, and their new coach, Larry Snyder, who's a great runner at Ohio State himself, are the powerhouse of the state of Ohio in track and field. Ohio State not necessarily known for great racial relations. A lot of the black papers were disappointed by his choice. We're hoping he would go uh, to a different school. But he goes to Ohio State. He goes two and a half hours south to the capital city to become a Buckeye. He would later be known as the Buckeye Bullet. That same year, 1933, when Jesse Owens moves to Columbus to attend Ohio State University, is the same year that Adolf Hitler comes to power in Germany as the chancellor. Germany struck hard by the the Great Depression, which hits internationally. It's not just a, a problem here in America in 1929. Hitler actually gets elected. We talked to David um, about that process. How did this maniac actually get elected? What was the process? Um, the games were actually awarded to Germany before he was the, the chancellor uh, in 1931 under the Weimar government. Um, but we talked to David about those early years, the rise of Nazi Germany. It included a lot of intra-party conflict, a great deal of backroom finagling, and some murderous ruthlessness uh, when you put it all together. And so the games, as you noted, were awarded to Germany in 1931 when the Weimar uh, regime, Weimar government was still there. And at that point, actually, there were moments of optimism for the the possibilities of a democratic Germany. The situation in Germany seemed to be uh, stabilizing in the late 20s and in the early 30s. And in those days, the Nazis were picking up 3% of the national vote in, in national and in Reichstag elections, you know, and um, their, their party finances were bad. They were pretty good at local politicking and they were really pretty good at retail politics, so it's not as though they needed large-scale fundraising to pull off massive national wins. Or put a better way, it was that retail politics and, and the local strength, local energy, that allowed them to stay alive in those years. What really impelled the Nazis to power was the Depression, which clobbered Germany, led to sky-high unemployment rates, decimated the industrial economy, and precisely because they had become so dependent on American loans, they were really embedded in the web of international finance. And that's what the Depression actually was. It was a collapse of the international financial system. Mm -hmm. And anybody who was dependent on that system was was bound to... to to suffer badly. Especially a country on such shaky ground to begin Especially, with. Especially, yeah. And, and the Nazis were there to pick up the, the pieces. But remember, you know, in those 1932 elections, the late uh, 32 elections, the Nazis, they did, they, they were the leading party, but um, their, their percentage of votes had diminished quite a lot in, in those elections. And that, that last election before he was named chancellor, they lost some two million votes from the national elections uh, previous. And it was the communists who gained, right? And he was. He was constitutionally the chancellor of the party. But of course, the Nazis quickly took steps to consolidate what power they had. And they were very systematic, they were very quick, and they were very ruthless. 
And uh, at that point, they pressured Hindenburg to um, appoint Hitler as um, president as well. That was the total consolidation of power that he had in hands by mid-1934. And that's when he becomes the Fuhrer. That's when he becomes the Fuhrer. From that point on, any vestige of popular politics, uh, certainly any 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 mirage of democracy was was done with. Jesse's time in Columbus in the mid-1930s, the city was still marked by intense segregation. Jesse couldn't live on campus. African-Americans could not live in the dorms. He had to live off campus. Uh, Coach Larry Snyder at Ohio State, uh, he's known for innovative methods, and he gets Jesse the absolute best out of Jesse Owens. Uh, He would play music. He played jazz during their practices. Um, He was kind of an innovator, but he's a bit of a maverick. Coach Snyder makes him the first ever African-American captain of a varsity team at Ohio State. Jesse starts winning every race. Long jump, hurdles, 200, 100. He's a star at Ohio State. There were other black members on the team. His great friend Dave Albritton, who would join him, a high jumper, uh, went to high school with him at East Tech, went to Ohio State, and medaled at the 36 games with Jesse. Um... But Ohio State still has a a long way to go when it comes to race relations, as do most universities. Jesse feels that sting. They have to travel to different places, you know, for their meets, and they're going to the Butler Relays in Indianapolis. And they wait out in the car in in a little town called Richmond, Indiana, just over the border. It's where Tom Raper's RVs are, if you know know anything about those old commercials from the 80s. But the owner comes out and says he won't serve them even if they're outside. He doesn't want to cook food for... Well, you can imagine the words that he would have used in that parking lot. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Dave Albritton would always want to fight anybody. Um, he had a hot temper for anybody who, who, who gave them any, any you know, racial discrimination. Jesse would normally be the one to calm him down, just like he did in Indiana. But Jesse, again, becomes a star. In 1935, he goes to the Big Ten Championship, and he has what I believe to be one of the greatest days of any athlete of all time. On that day, May 25th, 1935, in Ann Arbor at Ferry Field, Jesse Owens, in 45 minutes, sets three world records. Not college records, not American records, world track and field records. He runs the 100 first in 9.4 seconds. Snyder timed him himself at 9.3, argues. Uh, they have a notoriously slow timer, it said, at Michigan. Uh, you know, probably part of the rivalry. But he clocks Jesse at 9.4, which only ties the record. So Jesse moves on to the long jump. We already talked about his 26, 8-inch, 8-and-a-quarter-inch jump, a record that stood for 25 years, a record that would basically he would make the Olympics now. He moves 15 minutes later to the 220-yard dash. It's 220 in college. Um, you run around the track there. He runs it in 20.3 seconds, a world's record. And then the 220 low hurdles. Again, another world record. The first guy to break 23 seconds. In 45 minutes, a guy who was kind of on the fringe of celebrity is now being mobbed by the press. He drives back to Cleveland. He goes down you know, the old Lake Highway there, Route 2, with his, with his high school coach. And his life changes. When he gets back to his house, 
there are reporters everywhere. Jesse Owens has become a celebrity. We talked to David Steigerwald uh, about that day in 1935 when Jesse Owens breaks three world records and ties another one in under an hour. I'd be willing to argue that it was the single greatest athletic performance in college sports history. Um, maybe with the the possible exception of Zeke Elliott in the, <laughs> in the, in, Alabama. In the Alabama game. Um, you know, we have our biases, don't we? I, but no, I, in, I don't disagree with that. In all honesty, it was uh, uh, an amazing performance. He set three world records. Uh, and he, he didn't just burst on the scene at that point. He, uh, people knew about him. He'd been running very strong. Uh, he'd been wiping out people in races. So it wasn't as though it, this was a kid nobody'd ever heard of. But even with that, it was an amazing performance. And it's worth uh, remembering that up to that point, uh, Michigan had had the best track team this side of USC. And so it was a great victory for Buckeyes. Um, um, because of that. It was a, a remarkable performance. Oh, I love that it happened in Ann Arbor. Yeah, yeah it's great. It's a great story. But, you know, uh, from that point on, the OSU track team couldn't get together um, and uh, for a practice without thousands of people coming to see them, which speaks again to the prominence of track and field. Oddly, at that moment, we don't remember track and boxing as really important sports these days because they don't really play that big a role with football and basketball and and the other sports that are so widely publicized. As we said, the Olympic Games are awarded to Germany before it was run by the Nazis. But Hitler decides this is a great opportunity to show the world and show his own citizens just how great the Third Reich can be through its athletes, through its presentation, the pomp and circumstance, it really is the first modern games. It's filmed, uh, there's a famous movie, you know, Olympiad that is made that Hitler and, and Goebbels, uh, his propaganda minister, uh, you know, help manage. You see the Olympic torch uh, run from Athens to, to, you know, lit during the opening ceremonies. Uh, we asked Dave about kind of these, 1935, what Hitler seizing the Olympics as he turns to the idea that this could be a great windfall, a great boon for the Third Reich to show the world, and really, David says, to convince their citizens of Aryan superiority and Hitler's vision of a Nazi world. Let's say that he never really was interested in the games until he appreciated their propaganda value and showed Hitler that they could be manipulated for both foreign policy. My own view is that they made more hay in domestic politics with them, uh, and, and, and the propaganda value was much stronger at home than it was internationally. So, you know, for 36, um, things were getting increasingly uh, cloudy. In, in Europe in, in mid-decade, they could be shaped and the public relations could be molded in ways that befitted the Nazi conceit that they were a kind of throwback to classical Greece and the foundations of Western civilization. Number one, they were 
pre-Christian. And it allowed the, the Nazis another way of demonstrating the essence of, of German fascism in ways that weren't tied to Christianity and the church. Hitler, right? Hitler seemed to love a, a good pagan spectacle. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a real misconception to think of uh, the Nazis in any way as, as, as Christian. They, they were hostile to Christian, as a matter of fact, what they did to German Christianity was much the same thing that they did to the Nazi, to the, the Olympic Games. They expropriated the symbolism for their own purposes. I mean, they turned Christ into a Nazi, basically, in the German church. They turned the games into a, a Nazi vehicle by appropriating all of the symbols of, of classical Greece, which was perversely ironic, right? Because they had the torch run from Athens to Berlin through territory that in a few years the Germans would overrun with... In uh, some cases, a few months. Yeah, well, yeah, not too long. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, I, to me, it was the, the matter of using the games for domestic propaganda. To some extent, because they had to accede to some small measure of the IOC's demands to hide their anti-Semitism, it was a little bit of inconvenience for them. An idea of a boycott of the games comes up. You see it in the press and in New York as these stories come back from Germany of the anti-Semitism and the prison camps and the just incredibly strict rule of the Nazis over their people. The NAACP even asked Jesse and other black athletes not to go to the games. Jesse considers the boycott. But there are rallies nationally in New York. Thousands of people turn up. Uh, voices on both sides to go and to stay, to not politicize sports. Jesse's caught in the middle. We talked to Dave about the boycott movement. How serious was it? How close was Jesse Owens to not being the famous Ohio State Buckeye bullet that he became in Berlin in 36? It's hard to say. The politics of the games at that moment are pretty interesting. And I have a bizarre, I guess, uh, inconclusive answer, which is that, that the boycott movement was potent and well publicized, but I'm not convinced that it had the depth of support and breadth of support that it would have needed in order to forestall the games. In some ways, as I read through the newspapers and, and the uh, resources that we have, it seems to suggest that the, the boycott was really the, the, the uh, cause of East Coasters, maybe Chicago too. There wasn't much residence in the heartland for it. And to be honest with you, the Olympics weren't um, all that high on the minds of the farmer in Iowa who was trying to still get out from underneath debt and for and foreclosure in the Jewish organizations, but so too um, African-American organizations. A lot of the black newspapers editorialized on behalf of the boycotts. The Amsterdam News, which was the Harlem, the New York City, very influential black newspaper, was aggressively supportive of the boycott and called on African-American athletes to follow it. William Dodd, who was the American ambassador to Berlin, uh, subject of the fascinating book Beasts in the Garden, uh, one I, I really recommend if you're interested in U.S. 
Nazi relations before the war. He was a, a proponent of the boycott. So there were important voices for it, and there was a lot of noise made in certain quarters, but the, the greatest obstacle to it was Avery Brundage. Brundage, who had been the head of the American Olympic Committee uh, on the way to the planning of the 36, ga 36 games, uh, Brundage was, I, and I don't say this with an eye towards being inflammatory or an ear toward that, there's just no other way to count him. He was a racist and an anti-Semite. Yeah. I mean, it's just that plain. And so he, he chalked the boycott movement up to Jewish conspirators and was cuttingly, nastily, uh, uh, vituperatively insulting about it. And he had no regard whatsoever for African-American opinion. Now, he, he left the uh, American Olympic Committee um, in the midst of this, but he was still a member of the International Olympic Committee, so he was by no means out of it. And he never left the Olympic He always saw himself as um, the father of the American Olympics all the way into the 60s. And, uh, right? you know, in 70, 70s, 72, even. he's the one who says the games must go on after the, that, the shooting. That's exactly right. You're, you're exactly... I've always thought of him in this regard as kind of the Herbert... Or the, uh, the, not the Herbert... Uh, um, the um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, <laughs> of the Olympics, of the Olympics right? Yeah. Because he was a nasty right-winger just like... Uh, and he would never just die. Like the, and he lived forever, right? <laughs> and he just saw this just as Hoover saw the FBI as his baby. His domain. Brundage yeah. saw the Olympics as his realm. And so he was horrified at the thought that the boycott would go through. Now, Owens in particular um, got himself kind of in his own clumsy fashion involved when he made a kind of offhand comment on a radio interview that he didn't think uh, African-American athletes should go if indeed Hitler was was discriminating against Jews. Well, that got back to Larry Snyder, who was the OSU coach. He was he was Owen's foremost mentor at that point, and he said, "No, no, you you can't say that. You you gotta go." Um, he told him if he if he didn't go to Berlin, he would wind up a forgotten man. That this was his one shot, his only shot and he was right. at at real fame, in spite of that amazing performance that uh, Owens had put on the year before at the, the Big Ten Championship in Ann Arbor. And Snyder apparently made another kind of um, interesting remark to Owens that tells you that Snyder was not um, clueless about attitudes in black communities. He told Owens, look, why should we oppose Germany for doing something that we do to you here at home? And Absolutely. that seemed enough to get Owens back on board. And off they went. As a matter of fact, uh, there was no black boycott of the Olympics, no boycott at all, but um, that Olympic team was the most integrated team up to that point, and the track team was particularly well integrated. Hitler begins a process of militarization, of provoking France and England and Russia. Um, in 1934, the burning of books, the 
the Nuremberg Laws passed in 35, which basically stripped Jewish citizens of their citizenship in Germany. He militarizes the Rhineland. He, he leaves the League of Nations. He contravenes the Treaty of Versailles. He starts his air force, the Luftwaffe. He hands them over to Hermann Goering. All these things are happening in the lead up to the 36 games. And we asked David about 1935, 1936, as we go speeding towards war in 1939, the political climate just before the games in Berlin. It's clear, as is often said, was said at the time, the war clouds were beginning to gather. In 1935, uh, the Italians invaded what was then called Abyssinia, uh, Ethiopia, and uh, that was the first extension of fascist imperialism. The 36, the Spanish Civil War intensified and brought the Italians and the Germans uh, into the, the fight on the side of the uh, Franco-fascists. So by the time the games were, were being held, it looked like you could make an argument for consolidated fascist aggression beginning. In the case of the Germans in particular, it's really important to remember that in May, they remilitarized the Rhineland, uh, and in so doing, they basically abrogated or renounced the Versailles Treaty. It was an enormously uh, provocative move that the French government uh, um, really, really worried about, but did nothing about uh, except to accelerate their own military preparation, uh, futile as that ended up being. In the summer of 1936, Jesse Owens goes to New York for the Olympic trials. That same day, the Triborough Bridge is being dedicated within basically sight of the, of the, Olymp of the track stadium. A nine-year-old kid by the name of Anthony Benedetto sings God Bless America before the dedication of the bridge. We now know him as Tony Bennett, still alive today. His biggest rival, Euless Peacock, has pulled a hamstring, he's out basically of the trials. FDR is there at the bridge, President Roosevelt, it's an election year, and he dedicates the bridge with a speech about the New Deal, about all the jobs and infrastructure work that's being done and how this bridge is a, is a proof, you know, positive of that point. We talked briefly with Dave about FDR, one of our most revered presidents who got us through such a horrible depression uh, and led us through World War II, but very little f focus you see on FDR in his domestic relations, uh, especially with African Americans. Uh, we talked briefly with, with David about, about FDR's policy towards African American inequality. To be sure, Roosevelt had no great record on African American uh, rights. Um, he famously resisted the anti-lynching legislation that was put before Congress every year in the 1930s. He, um, he didn't do much to guarantee that New Deal programs were delivered in a non-discriminatory way in the South. In his view, he couldn't afford to because he needed those Southern Democrats to, to accept the New Deal programs because he needed their votes for everything that he put together in Congress, right? He was really beholden to that Southern wing. And, 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 you know, a lot of his stuff was against their state rights, their natural instincts, and he really did need to court them as much as possible. He did. Um, 
you know, I think as an ethical, moral matter, we can't take that as an excuse. But in fact, that's what his calculations were, rather than I'm not going to deign to bring a, a colored man, so-called, in here. Um, after all, I mean, basically his view on civil rights was he was going to engage in it to the limits, small as they were, that his political situation um, allowed him to massage. Meanwhile, his wife could do whatever she wanted, as he famously said, which was champion African-American rights. And, and that was kind of his own personal compromise with the issue. Um, I don't, I'm not sympathetic to Roosevelt on this score, by the way, because there were things especially that he should have done to at least to guarantee the non-discriminatory delivery of government programs throughout the country. It wasn't, as we've already noted, just the South that was guilty of, of racial discrimination. And he simply had no taste for doing that, no interest in doing that. In preparation for those Olympic Games, Jesse goes cold turkey. Jesse Owens liked to party. He liked to drink. He liked to dance. He even smoked cigarettes. I know, our greatest track and field champion was a cigarette smoker. Um, it was a different time, let's just put it that way. That famous day in 1935 when he sets you know, three world records in an hour, he actually had a hurt back from horsing around with his friends at Ohio State. But Jesse goes cold turkey, no drinking, no Saturday nights, which is what Coach Snyder always gave him his Saturday nights. And he prepares for the games to become the absolute best track and field star he can be. He works on his poor starts, his form, his jumps. And he goes and he wins every event in the trials, and he's ready for the Olympics. Jesse gets on a boat in New York with all the other U.S. athletes, and the team makes its way to Germany for the Olympic Games. Jesse qualifying first at all the Olympic trials. He's the favorite. People can't wait to see him perform. He's not an unknown. He's actually a star at this point. He's probably the biggest athlete in the country besides Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis actually just lost to Max Schmeling, a German, in a highly anticipated heavyweight championship fight just a month before the games. He would later come back and beat Smelling after the games, but the Nazis held that up as Aryan, another example of Aryan superiority, physical superiority, athletic accomplishment. And these games in this stadium in Berlin, everything about it would be a showcase of what Hitler's been saying, the eugenics, the dominant race, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan. Jesse Owens goes to, goes to Germany to blow that myth up. On the second day of the Olympic Games of 1936, Jesse Owens, on August 3rd, takes to the track for the 100-meter finals. He has a great start. He always loved the starter at the Olympics. The guy, he was always perfect. Jesse could get a little bit of a jump, which was always his weakness. We're going to play for you the sights and sounds of Jesse's thoughts about that 100-yard dash as he makes his run for his first ever gold medal at the Olympics. The track is heavy. 
It's starting to rain. My lane will be particularly soggy. It's the most run on part of the track. In every race, everybody almost immediately moves to the inside. This is it. A lifetime of training for just 10 seconds. Perfect. to have won the 100 meters in the Olympic Games here in Berlin. A very beautiful place and a very beautiful setting. The competition was grand, and we're very glad to come out on top. Thank you very kindly. He runs the 100 in 10.3 seconds, the 100 meters, tying a world record, beating Ralph Metcalf by a tenth of a second, and winning his first gold medal. He won his main event, the biggest event in track and field, maybe the biggest event in the Olympics. It might still be. He's the fastest man in the world. He gets a gold medal. They're going to play the national anthem. He looks up to Hitler's box. Hitler was there. He saw it. He's sitting next to Goebbels. We asked, uh, it's kind of a famous moment. Did Hitler snub him? He had taken a lot of the other champions into his box early in the games. But there's no way he's going to allow Jesse Owens an African-American, into his, you know, the chancellor, the Fuhrer's box at the Berlin Stadium, the Olympic Stadium. We talked to Dave about, was he snubbed? What happened after he won the race? Did Hitler acknowledge him? And how Jesse's story kind of changed on what happened that day. The crowd was into it. Um, and the Americans who were there were delighted with the... Uh, with the win. But so the story is that, um, that Hitler had been uh, greeting all of the gold medalists and that when Owens won, he got up out of his seat and walked out of the stadium rather than greeting him. But that's, a, that's a part of Owens' mythology. The story is that on the first day of the games, Hitler did indeed greet gold medalists in his box. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were all Germans. Um, if I remember right, they were certainly all Europeans. Yeah. And so there was no racial um, tension in that. The head of the IOC came to him and said, look, if you are going to greet the German uh, athletes, you've got to greet everybody. And of course, Hitler had no intention of greeting uh, a black American, right? And so he made the decision not to greet anybody else after that in the stadium. They started to, he started to applaud or to greet um, personally, German athletes individually elsewhere after the performances, mm -hmm. right? So they take them out of the stadium, they go meet the Fuhrer, and that's the way they were doing it. Yeah, he's, so, he's never going to have a picture with himself and Jesse Owens. No way, hands. no way. And there's no question that of that, right? So did he snub him? Yeah, I, I think he did snub him. Did he snub him in the way that the story usually holds? No. He says even, you know, he gave him like a little a heads up or a hand signal or something. That's right. Yeah. He, he, so that's what he said at the time, right? right? And the historian's view is that you're best off taking contemporaneous comments than you are taking comments from 30 years later. Jesse goes on to win the 200-meter dash. He beats Mac Robinson um, from Pasadena College. Mac was actually Jackie Robinson's older brother a great track star in his own right. Jesse now has two gold medals. 
Again, Hitler does not take him into the box. He leaves before uh, he leaves before the medal ceremony. The papers write about it. Again, we talked about you know this is something Hitler just couldn't do apparently, but Jesse sticks it to every single Nazi, and the crowd loves him. The actual German fans there and international fans, he's their favorite. They crowd around him. They cheer his name. Jesse Owens now has two gold medals, and he moves to the long jump, his final event. Jesse was probably favored the most in the in the long jump, called the broad jump then, of any of his Olympic uh, sports. This is supposed to be his last event. Three gold medals, three events was all. He wasn't slated to run in the relay, the 4 by 100 that was set for the next day. But this ends up being by far the most challenging and most dramatic of Jesse's victories. His main contender is a German long jumper named Lutz Long. Lutz, one of the Nazi youths, he looks just like out of the Nazi catalog. Uh, Strong, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, a super athlete. And Lutz is a hell of a leaper. Hitler's there to watch his final race. We'll actually play you some sound here in a minute uh, as Jesse talks about what happened with Lutz Long. They had met at the Athlete's Village. They had been speaking. Um, But in the morning session, as Jesse's trying to qualify for the long jump finals, he takes his first his first attempt, and as Jesse always liked to do, they call his name Jesse Owens USA, and he steps up and he likes to take a nice long sprint down the down the board, uh, and get right there and just you know kind of put his feet into the sand as he as he slows down just to try and get his takeoff point. Jesse does his routine, he runs you know he runs across the the takeoff board into the sand, turns around, jogs back for his first attempt, but when he turns around, the German judge has the red flag up. It's a fault. They said he passed the line. And although he didn't believe it an attempt, they said those are the rules. And trust me, in Nazi Germany, the rules are the rules. The coaches raise hell with the judge, and the first attempt is a fail. It's a foul. So Jesse shakes that off, and he's... Lutz Long's already put up a great first, you know, first jump. Jesse runs down the track and steps over the foul line in his next jump, puts up a great jump, but again... The red flag is up. He's down to his final chance to qualify. Jesse Owens, his, the most favored long jumper probably in Olympic history, is in danger of not even making the finals. And it's at this time that their story really takes off. Lutz Long walks up to Jesse Owens, puts his arm around his shoulder, and asks him what's wrong, and tells him to just draw a little line a foot behind the takeoff line. The story goes that he laid down a towel a foot before so Jesse would have a I've never found anything that actually showed that, watching the video of the actual jump. But Lutz helps Jesse, this moment of sportsmanship between a Nazi and an African-American. It's an incredible moment in sports history. Jesse uses Lutz's advice, and he takes off, and he jumps just enough over 25 feet to qualify. He's in the finals. Jesse's first shot in the finals, as as we'll talk about here, we'll play you the clip, uh, 25-10. Remember his record, 26, eight and a quarter from, from Ann Arbor the year before. It's a good jump. But Lutz takes his first jump, and he ties Owens. And the crowd is going crazy. I think it's actually Long's second jump, but he ties Owens. And we've got the battle is on. Um, Jesse's second jump, he outdoes it a little bit. He goes just over 26 feet. Lutz has one final, final run, and Lutz actually steps over the line and fouls. Jesse's one. He takes his next jump, which is actually his longest, 26 and a half feet. It's an Olympic record. 
The moment he lands and steps out of the pit, Lutz Long is right there to congratulate him. The Nazi superstar puts his arm around Owens. They run around the track to just the howls of the crowd. Long finishing in second place with the silver. Owens, the, the story of the Olympics, collecting his third gold medal for the United States. But that moment, their embrace, will play you the recollections of, of Jesse Owens from that magical day at the Berlin Olympic Stadium. I still had one jump left. I wanted it to be remembered. Jesse's Olympics appear to be done. Finally, the papers say somebody else can win a gold medal. Somebody else can be the story of these games. The Buckeye Bullet is finished after you know, scoring three golds for, the, for his home country. But behind the scenes, the U.S. track and field coaches start making some maneuvers. This idea that Jesse didn't want to run the relay is it, just not true. It's not something we'd see now. We'd never sit Carl Lewis on our, our relay team. But back then, we had two, three other competitors um, who were great sprinters and who had finished high enough in the Olympic trials to make the trip and be on the relay team. They were Sam Stoller and Marty Glickman, two white Jewish Americans. They were slated. They had spent the entire week practicing. And when they get to the day before the event, the 4 by 100 basically the final track event um, of the week, and their coach pulls them. They put in Jesse Owens. They put in another runner from USC. But they pull the two Jewish-American runners. We ask our guest, David Steigerwald, what was behind this decision? Was it an anti-Semitic decision? There's, there's all kinds of theories thrown out there of why this happened. David gives us what he thinks is the best reason that Jesse is put in um, to the 4 by 100 relay that the Americans will win easily, giving Jesse his fourth and historic gold medal. William Baker, um, who is most scholarly of, uh, at this point of uh, Owen's biographers, has a really good account, or one that I find persuasive, and um, one that shows a familiarity with what was going on inside the team. And the answer is that all of those are not right. So one of the assistant coaches was the USC coach, and um, a guy named uh, Lawton Robertson, Robertson, yeah. who was a, a giant in the uh, AAU track uh, community, right? USC is the best team. That's they, right. They, and we, I say, finishes second in 1935 with Owens, and they finished second to USC. Yeah, right. And um, so he's got some runners who hadn't won as many medals as Owens, right? So. Yeah, it looks as though, at least this is the way Baker tells the story, that um, Robertson got to the, the the Olympic head coach and he began to press him to uh, replace Stoller and, and Glickman with um, USC runners. And he began to concoct these other arguments that it would be an insult to the guests to let a Jewish runner run. And then they floated this crazy idea that to to win the relay race, the Germans had been withholding these 
these super sprinters. That's my favorite to, one. Right, to, to, to which everybody kind of scratched their heads and said, how can you hide world-class athletes, right? Yeah. So it didn't make any sense on the face of it. My, I, I'm, again, I'm persuaded with Baker's um, explanation that it was really the connivance of the USC coach who had enough sway, not just at the Olympics, but broadly in the, in the community of AAU that he got his way. And so Stoller and Glickman were sidelined. And what was really a, I mean, there's a snub right there. And um, they surely would have won. Everybody assumed that the American Olympic team with them was still by far the class of the field. And that, of course, would have would have really um, capped off a, a, a good screw you, Mr. Fuhrer. You know, we wouldn't think of put, not putting our best runners in our races now, but the United States sprinting team in 1936 was so head and shoulders beyond, to your point, they could have had, easily had Glickman or Stoller, they might have been able to have Steigerwald and Beastie, <laughs> uh, you know, with some of those other runners they had, because they do win rather easily. Yeah. Jesse Owens comes home to New York. Uh, they sail into to New York Harbor, and the media's there, and he's celebrated. There's a giant ticker-take parade for all the Olympic champions down the Canyon of Heroes. Thousands, millions of people, I guess, show up. We play a little clip we found from that day when they land, the celebration there on the harbor as Fiorella LaGuardia um, introduces Jesse. And Jesse talks about that celebration, this day of triumph in his home country, his first day home. to the people that stood on the sidewalk that were giving us this tremendous ovation, a bag was thrust into the car. I looked at the bag thinking that it was a sandwich or some food. After staying overnight, we embarked for the distant city of Cleveland. The bag was almost forgotten. And as we rode on the train, talking about old times, I opened the bag. And the bag was some $10,000. $10,000 to a family that was poor, a family from Alabama, a thought given by people that we did not know. Where it came from, who it came from, we have never found out. But we certainly do know that this money gave a tremendous lift. But what Jesse doesn't talk about in that clip, and I think it's just so crazy, is there's a big dinner that night, a reception for all these Olympic champions at the Waldorf Astoria. He's just been feted down, you know, Broadway. He's, he's a hero in this country. 
But when he arrives at the Waldorf Astoria, probably the most famous hotel in New York, one of the most famous in the world, and it's indicative of all, almost all hotels in the North and the South in the United States in 1936. I've been to the Waldorf. It's incredible. I spent a New Year's Eve there once. But he's denied entrance. He has to go around back, and he's the service entrance. For a dinner in his own honor, in his own country, he's made to use the service entrance. I've always found that to just be sickening. Um, that him and his wife have to have to be humiliated like that. Jesse never mentions that kind of stuff in the story. He just talks about what an incredible day it was being honored in New York and spending it with all these other fellow Olympic champions and politicians. But that's part of the story. Nor is Jesse received by our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We asked uh, Professor Steigerwald about that. About, you know, Jesse says on the campaign trail when he's campaigning for the Republican opponent, Alf Landon, he says that he was... He wasn't snubbed by Hitler. He was snubbed by our own president. No telegram, no personal invitation, no nothing. No letter from the president. We asked David Steigerwald about Jesse's return um, and his almost immediate involvement in the 1936 presidential election. Owens got back to the United States in, what, uh, September of 1936, and immediately he began to campaign for Alf Landon. So why would Roosevelt bring him in? Right. You know, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what is it about, and I just don't know enough about Alf Landon, you know, the 1936 election. I know Landon gets, gets crushed. I mean, he gets seven electoral votes. Um, <laughs> what is it about Landon's campaign that would appeal to Jesse or African-Americans more than, you know, a re-election of, of FDR? It was purely the party of Lincoln vote. Yeah. And African-American political loyalty was only then coming unglued from the Republican Party. So, um, you know, you had some people who had benefited from the New Deal who were beginning to lean to the Democrats. There were those um, mostly Northern intellectuals who began to see the Democrats as the party of progressivism under Roosevelt, who began to turn away from the Republican Party. But the African-American vote in the 1930s was solidly Republican, as it remained really up until 1948 when Truman's much more genuine outreach to black voters began to pull them over into large numbers to the Democrats, but that was only temporary as well. By 1952 and 56, uh, they went back to, to more than just a 50-50 vote Republican. And it wasn't until 1960 with Kennedy and then obviously with Johnson in 1964 that the African-American vote became predominantly Democrat. There's nothing whatsoever that Owens did that was unusual, that was out of character for someone who was trying to, to stand as a spokesman of the so-called Negro com uh, community. Uh, he was doing what Jackie Robinson did yeah, most Robin of his life. He was a Dem he was a Republican all his life. Yeah, Robinson campaigned for Eisenhower. That's he even right. campaigned for uh, for Dewey in '48. Yeah, um, hardly a surprise. And you, I, I, you can you make a great point. People don't realize that the African American vote was majority Republican until really '64. I think would be the tipping point. Well, '60 is the tipping point. Yeah, but '64 locks it in. Well, you, you've got Goldwater voting against the Civil Rights Act. One, <laughs> right. He, he didn't exactly help himself he did right, not. Uh, in that regard. But, um, you know, Kennedy with his famous uh, phone call to Mrs. King and the, the sort of tepid outreach to civil rights 
that he engaged in was enough to bring, actually it was the last couple of weeks in the election of 1960 that brought black voters to the Democratic side. But, you know, if you go through the Owens material over in the OSU archive, you will find invitations to both of Richard Nixon's inaugural balls. Wow. In 68 and 70? Yeah, right. That's pretty cool. So um, he remained a Republican all his life. Jesse's in, in Germany. He's getting all kinds of telegrams. Hey, do this, do that. We'll pay you for this. Be their spokesman for that. All those things when he comes home, they all dry up. They're all fake offers. There's no money in being Jesse Owens when he returns. Other than that bag of cash he got in New York City he told us about during the parade. But Jesse's got a family and he's got to make money. He starts doing barnstorming tours across America uh, where he's basically racing horses. He'll give himself a 20-yard head start and he'll race against a horse in a, in, in a race. And sometimes he wins and sometimes he loses. Um, but he's, he's doing whatever he can to make money. No jobs are coming his way. No commercial endorsements. Jesse Owens is an African-American in 1936. And he might be the most famous African-American next to Joe Lewis. But there's no money in that. We're not even close to the end of the Jim Crow era in this country. You know, go back and listen to our episode 9, Ohio versus Jim Crow. We're talking about the mid-60s. This is 30 years previous. Jesse Owens is forced to make a living just like when he was pumping gas at the old Ohio station in Columbus and up on Cedar Avenue in Cleveland. But Jesse's achievements are so great that every four years people are reminded of the Buckeye bullet. And he finally does become a part of mainstream culture again. He makes speeches. He, he goes on television multiple times. Um, and he does finally begin to turn a little bit of profit for just being Jesse Owens, the celebrity, the Olympic champ. Jesse lives to be 66 years old. He's a pack-a-day smoker in the second half of his life. And he actually dies of lung cancer in Tucson, Arizona in 1980 at the age of 66, surrounded by his family. We talked to David Steigerwald one last time, our guest, about he runs the World War II Study Abroad program every summer for The Ohio State University. It sounds so awesome. They go all over Europe, you know, England, France, Poland. They go, to, they go everywhere, but they finish their trip every year in Berlin, and they finish that day, that final day, at the Olympic Stadium. We asked David about just that little slice of Ohio State that happens to be in West Berlin and how they commemorate it and how they celebrate the end of an incredible trip and the life and accomplishments of an incredible man, James Cleveland Owens. We do make a special trip to the stadium. It's out on the west side, and we also go out to Potsdam on the way back into the city, uh, which is usually our very last stop. We stop at the Olympic Stadium. It's the last place, yeah. and, and the stadium's the last stop. It's just kind of natural for them to do their OHIO poses right there, framed by the the stone pillars that are right in front of the, the uh, stadium. And this year, a couple of enterprising students used that as the H, and they held somebody up to make the nice. crossbar on the H. Nice. Nobody had done that before. <laughs> but while we're... When we're done with the pictures there, we walk along the west side of the stadium, which is framed by the street named Jesse Owens Ali. And so we go over there and we take a group photo, a couple group photos underneath the sign. And 
you know, we really like that moment because it's kind of our Buckeye space in Berlin and the people driving by don't know what the heck we're doing and they think, we're well, crazy Americans, what are they doing standing there of all places, you know? But we do it because it's our place. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation for today is Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. It's by Jeremy Schapp from 2007. Uh, the ESPN reporter, you might know him as the son of Dick Schapp, a very famous sports writer. Uh, Jeremy Schapp now hosts E60, kind of an investigative sports news show on ESPN. But his book, really fun, not a very terribly long read. Again, Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. His book ends up being the, the source of the movie Race, which was released in theaters last year, uh, 2016 about Jesse Owens in those Olympics. Uh, Stephen James, great actor playing Jesse Owens. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, one of my favorite comedy actors, playing Coach Larry Snyder of Ohio State. Uh, I mean, hell, they even have Jeremy Irons playing, uh, you know, the IOC AAU president, uh, Avery Brundage, we talked about. Um, and he's obviously, you know, a fantastic actor. So check out Race. I think it's on HBO Go is how I saw it. Um, Came out in theaters last year. Really solid movie based on Shap's book. Uh, so if you don't want to read the book and you want to be lazy and watch the movie, I'm totally cool with that. Um, we can have a movie recommendation as well for this show. Um, don't forget, we got Nightlight 614 is going to be donating to us. Uh, we'll be volunteering at their Thursday, August 24th showing of The Sandlot downtown on the river. Go to nightlight614.com. Get your tickets. Awesome food vendors. Four or five food trucks. The best in the city. Uh, land grant will be providing the beer there'll be wine liquor soft drinks desserts all kinds of stuff uh nightlight 614 we're so glad that they are having us this year uh, it should be really cool also we still need a couple volunteers for that event on august 24th so if you're interested you'll get a free ohio v the world t-shirt uh email me at ohio v the world at gmail.com you'll just be pouring beer and wine uh and watching the sandlot so it's pretty fun from probably 6 30 to 10 OhioViewTheWorld at gmail.com if you're interested. Quick little programming note. Uh, we are going to have three more episodes this season. Uh, we're going to do 15 episodes season one and season two. Um, and we're going to take a little break here late summer in the fall. Uh, and we're going to actually do some historical writing. We're going to be writing for Timeline Magazine, um, which is the Ohio History Connections quarterly historical journal um, about Ohio history. There's a magazine about Ohio history, I know. So... They've asked us to get involved with that and, and contribute uh, some story ideas and, and do some research and some writing. Um, so we're really excited to do that during the break. Uh, and then we'll be right back with season two and a launch party and all kinds of new beers and books and topics and all that stuff. So we look forward to bringing you um, 
everyone who's been listening, it's been so overwhelming to see how many people are listening to the show. So tell your friends, subscribe, write us a review on iTunes. Uh, it's a lot easier to do from your desktop or laptop, but that really helps us bump up the ratings. So give us five stars and talk about how sexy my voice is if you get a chance. And props to the people who've written us reviews already. We, we do see those and we really do appreciate it. Um, you know, just to wrap up with Owens, you know, the country, Germany, does end up declaring war on Poland September 1st, 1939, three years after the games. And Owens returns home. Um, Hitler ends up dead in 1945, commits suicide in his Berlin bunker. Um, Avery Brundage, as we talked about, would go on to run the American Olympic team into the 70s. Jesse's friend from those games is long-jumping rival Lutz Long. They end up striking up a a great friendship, and they write back and forth. Um, But when the war comes, Lutz is conscripted into the army, as almost every able-bodied German male was. He dies in 1943 in Sicily. He writes Jesse during the war. He asks Jesse to go visit his son and tell him about his father. Lutz has no illusions about the war, that he's not going to make it. And Jesse actually would go do that. He would fly to Berlin and meet Lutz's son and tell him about their story. Uh, his son, who looked just like him, uh, Jesse said he saw Lutz's face and, and his son's face. Um, and he told his son about son who basically, Lutz died when his son was two years old. Um, to share those stories, he came back to Berlin. Uh, he came back to Berlin a few times. Um, but Lutz Long does die in the war, one of the great sportsmanship moments in Olympic history between those two. That's going to do it today. Uh, again, next episode, we got three more left. It's episode 13, Ohio versus gold. We'll be talking about the gold rush. And we'll be talking about going from the 1840s and 50s to the 1980s. A ship crashes in a Columbus area treasure hunter, Tommy Thompson. The story of how Tommy Thompson finds the world's biggest gold shipwreck. And the story of the gold rush and how that ship crashes and how Tommy Thompson finds it um, and brings it back to Columbus. And then the myriad of problems that happen when Tommy Thompson brings that gold back that are still going on today. We'll talk with Kathy Gray, reporter from the Columbus Dispatch, who's been writing stories about the treasure hunter Tommy Thompson for years. Um, And we'll get that just absolutely insane story in Ohio versus gold episode 13 uh, should be out in just a couple of weeks. So thanks for listening to episode 12 when Ohio defeated the Nazis and we will see everybody for episode 13, Ohio versus gold. Thank you so much for listening. Find us on Facebook, like us, check us out on Instagram, Ohio V the world podcast, and we will see you guys next time.
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.